Hi, and welcome to FolkPod. I'm your host, Cheryl Prashker. And here on FolkPod, we're going to talk to my friends, some of the most entertaining musicians and songwriters that I know. We will hear stories about their lives, art, inspiration, and what moves them. With a little luck, we'll also get some incredible music. And we'll try to figure out what that word folk really means, because Lord knows it's hard to define. This week's guest is Reggie Harris, a well-traveled performer, lecturer, and cultural ambassador. Reggie combines spirituals and roots music, historic inspiration, and moving original songs, often in the themes of unity and social justice. Known for over 40 years as one half of the eminently prominent duo Kim and Reggie Harris, Reggie continues to crisscross the country carrying the message of joy, unity, tolerance, and peace through the powerful medium of live music. I've had the joyful experience of performing with Reggie on several occasions, and I'm honored to call him a friend. Welcome, Reggie Harris. Well, thank you, Cheryl. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to be able to chat with you this way. It's been a while. It's been too long. Life has been amazingly busy for being in a COVID-19 protocol, but it's great to hear your voice. Great to hear yours as well. I'm, I'm looking forward to asking you some questions, learning a bit more about you and sharing you with everybody. Lord knows I could talk all night. <laughs> <laughs> and we've been known to. Yes, we have. <laughs> I think that's one of the great things about when we get to play together is the conversations we have before, sometimes during and after. <laughs> <laughs> well, I actually would like to start right from the beginning because there's stuff I know that I don't know about Reggie Harris, and I'm looking forward to finding out some of the answers. So if I may, I will start off with going right back to your musical beginning. I know you grew up in Philadelphia, of course. I did. Where did you first start singing, and when did guitar playing come into the mix, or did the guitar come first? No, actually, the guitar came much later. I was singing probably by age three, according to my mother. I can't remember a time, really, when I wasn't singing, when music wasn't around me. I remember that on Friday nights growing up, my mom and my sister and I would often gather around the piano. My mom would order the TV off, and we would stand around the piano and sing, starting usually with hymns, Broadway songs, and my mom and my sister to both play the piano. And that's really where I learned to start doing harmonies, because usually they had the melody. I had to find a place to be. But I sang a lot in my church. I went to a church about eight, ten blocks from my house, and there was tons of music there. Was that in Mount Airy? Actually, no. I grew up in uh, what was called Nice Town, 3714 North 17th Street. I always remember that address, because it was so formative. I didn't know it in those years, but growing up at that spot, my family was actually the first African-American family to buy a house on that block. Wow. I didn't find that out until I was about 26 years old. That is something. It was something else. You know, my grandparents migrated from Virginia. They were part of the Black Migration. They came to Philadelphia somewhere around 1900 and started their new lives. So I came along in 1952 and grew up in a house with my mom and my grandmother and my sister. My grandfather died when I was about three. And it was a pretty interesting community, kind of working class. But we were in church a lot. Church was kind of the center of our activity. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, your songs are so spiritual and just joyful, so I can see where that comes from. Well, you know, that was my grounding. I, you know, would complain growing up. I mean, my sister and I would always try to derail my mom's plans to get us in church all the time, <laughs> but she was a lot smarter and tougher than we were. <laughs> I believe it. I thanked her. She died in 2003, and I was able to thank her before she died for getting me into that building. 
because what I heard there serves me so well, not only as a grounding for life, and you know, I'm not part of that faith anymore, but the music that I heard and, and the voices, the feet on the floor and the songs that those people brought with them from Georgia and North Carolina, from the South as they came, the spirituals and the gospel songs. Once I got over that thing that you do when, when you're a teenager, you know, oh, got to right. get away from all this. Angst. Once I got over that and started to really become a musician, all of that grounding, all of that fabric started to rise and kind of inform my writing. Amazing. Do you recall when you wrote your first song? I mean, obviously, everything you were singing were spirituals in church. Do you recall when you wrote your first song? Do you recall the song at all? I actually do. <laughs> That's pretty cool. How old were you? I was actually 19 years old. I was introduced to the guitar by someone I was going out with. I was working for a center for emotionally disturbed kids, and this very attractive teacher came to work there, and she started taking me to folk concerts. And of course, growing up, I mean, I was singing gospel and spirituals, but I was listening to the Beatles, and my sister was a Motown fan. And so, you know, our house was kind of rocking with a lot of different kinds of music. And also, I don't always tell people this, but I am a huge organ fan. What? So I spent years listening to Bach and Counterpoint, and I also sang a lot of that music in high school. So, and especially because Philly is, as you well know, so yes. diverse in its musical tastes. I heard a lot of different kinds of music growing up and it all kind of coalesced when I was going out with this young woman who demanded that I learn three chords on the guitar. <laughs> a folky. Yeah, she was. <laughs> <laughs> You know, she was taking guitar lessons and she said, you should take guitar lessons. I said, you know, I'm kind of busy right now. I'm doing a lot of things. I'm playing ball. And she said, well, really? I thought you were interesting. Huh. I said, well, I am. And she says, well, if you won't learn three chords, I don't think I want to go out with you anymore. If you cared about me at all, you'd learn yeah, those yeah, three chords. <laughs> yeah. So I think I learned D, G, and A. And I got a guitar and it was off to the races. The rest is history. I wrote a song called Friend in Me. <laughs> <laughs> I know you have a friend in me was the chorus. I remember portions of it, but no, I'm, I'm not going there. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but I just think it's cool just to hear about people's first songs and what inspired them to write a song. And But now we know it was the folky who demanded you learn those three chords. It was. She touched a chord because when I was in the beginning of 12th grade, I was laying in bed one night and I had this show that I used to listen to, you know, Transistor Radio Under the Pillow. Right. <laughs> it was a show called Americana Panorama. And the guy used to play all kinds of different kinds of songs. And on a particular night, I think it was probably around November of that year, he played Fire and Rain. Wow. And I heard that guitar with, you know, James Taylor's hammer-ons. Yep. I went to school the next day and I just went around and I said to everybody, did you hear that song last night on the radio? And nobody had heard it. But when she put the guitar in my hands, all of that came back. And I couldn't put the guitar down. That's amazing. Your guitar has a voice of its own. It's like a mini orchestra of its own, which is why I personally love, you know, accompanying you on percussion. Yeah, well, that's why we work so well together. Yeah. We're creating atmosphere. The thing that I really appreciate about my background is that it really gave me a good sense of how music is atmosphere. Mm-hmm and how it can translate moods and all of that. And you're playing, of course. You're so amazingly intuitive about listening to what I'm doing vocally. Well, thank you. I miss that. I miss that too. Speaking of lyrics and things like that, when you write a song, what comes first, lyrics or the music? You know, it really depends. Somehow, I think because of my African-American roots, I'm very rhythmic, as you mentioned. So often it's just a little lick. Right. You know, when a lot of times ideas come after I sound check, 
<laughs> I know, it's that space. You know, you finish sound checking, you've got about an hour before the show, and before I leave the auditorium and go to the green room, the dressing room. You'll noodle like that. <laughs> yeah, things just kind of go. Some love like that'll come. And, and I think, oh, wow. And in the old days, I had to figure out a way. I didn't go to music school, so I can't notate things. Interesting. Okay. So I would have to just go to the dressing room and play it over and over again, try to remember. Fortunately, now we have cell phones. Yes, we can record <laughs> them right on the cell phone. Yeah. So I have about 50 little pieces of things on my cell phone. I've done the same thing. And I transfer them to the computer and study. Do you do that? Yeah. I just yeah, I'll think yeah. of an idea on the guitar. The music usually comes first. But if I don't record it on the cell phone, I'll forget it. Sometimes a phrase just comes in or I hear something I see something. It comes in all sorts of ways. The one thing that's true with me is I have kind of an unlimited ability to create melody. Really? Because of those early starts, I never have trouble coming up with harmonies. Did you and Kim write together or did you do most of the writing? I did most of the writing. She wrote periodically. Mm -hmm. Early on, she wrote a lot. Sort of over the years, she stopped writing. Although, you know, sometimes we would be commissioned by an organization mm -hmm. or they would ask us to write a song. And in those cases, we often did write together. We wrote differently, so it wasn't always easy. Right. We actually wrote a bunch of songs, but for the material that we performed, formed, most of that was mine. Well, you and Kim were basically such an important part of our folk community, and it stretches all across the United States. But let's be honest, there are only a handful of African-American artists in this folk field. What has that meant to you personally? And what has that meant for your career? And how have you addressed that? Or have you not? Oh, I had to address <laughs> it. I didn't want to. You know, we started going to folk events in Philadelphia. And yeah, it was a pretty intensely white world. Mm -hmm. They, by and large, were not that accepting of us coming in. We had a different style, a different sense of things. And, you know, we were two of the only black people around most of the time. So it was hard getting gigs. It was hard getting notice. I remember early on, Gene Shea actually had us on his show. And we'd been trying for a couple of years to get the folks at the Folk Song Society to book us or to give us a shot at one of their coffee houses. And I will always be eternally grateful to him because we sent him this little cassette tape with four <laughs> songs. And he called us up and he said, I like what I hear. And I mean, we were young. Wow. But he had us on, and I love that man. He treated us on that show as if we were Joni Mitchell or Gordon Lightfoot coming in to interview. That doesn't surprise me. And no, and he was always just so very supportive, and we became one of the leading community reps for the Folk Song Society. We used to go to hospitals and nursing homes and sing whenever they had people. They would sponsor that. And, you know, there were others in the society, actually. There was a woman named Barbara Smith, and we actually got a, another break when Barbara called us up once, and she told us that she had an opportunity if we could come up with a program to go into schools. And that actually is where our Underground Railroad came from. Well, I was going to ask you about that. I didn't know that story. Wow. We thought, what will we do? And, you know, most of the society was doing Irish music or right. Celtic music. And we thought, well, we're clearly not going to do that. We thought, well, maybe we'll do something gospel. And then Kim remembered a program that came to her elementary school when she was in fifth grade. And this guy talking about music and the Underground Railroad did a little bit of research and found out that there were spiritual song and there were code songs. So we put together this little half-hour program and took that into the schools. And then we met Dr. Charles Bloxen at Temple University, who was writing an article for National Geographic on the Underground Railroad. And he said, you should do an album on these songs. Nobody's ever done one. And I thought, hey, man, I'm busy trying to become a rock star. <laughs> You mean nobody had done songs tackling that subject? Not as a collection. Wow. I thought he was wrong. I mean, he said that. We said, that can't be true. But no, I mean, this was in the early years of people talking about the Underground Railroad. And the reason he was 
was doing the article for National Geographic was that most people still thought it was a myth. Hmm. So his article came out in July 1984, and he had convinced us to put the songs together into a collection, and that was our first LP. The first one? Is that Let My People Go? No, actually, it was called Music and the Underground Railroad. <laughs> and we piled songs together, Steal Away and Free at Last and Wade in the Water, and we did enough research, and he gave us a real heads up, because, you know, we were touring around doing colleges at that time, so we were all over the country, and we'd go visit Underground Railroad sites in various places. So we put out the album, and all of a sudden, people were interested in us. <laughs> Is that when you started going to schools and performing for kids? Yeah, we did. It opened up a window for connecting with education. And then we got an agent who was booking us at children's performances. And fortunately, she booked us for a week at the Kennedy Center. And they were starting a new program called Partners in Education with Artists and Educators. And we were one of the first seven artists that they brought in. Wow. And you guys still do that series, am I right? Yeah. The program has grown from seven artists and a few sites around the country to over 250 artists, which now, of course, is being impacted by all of this pandemic. But I was just on a Zoom call a couple weeks ago with a bunch of our Kennedy Center artists looking at what we can do in a remote sense or in whatever way we can do it. Yeah, a lot of my career has been spent between folk music, connecting with history, connecting with education, connecting with faith groups. All experience is useful. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> It's amazing. Can you tell me a little bit about something called the Living Legacy Organization? I would be happy to, especially since I'm now the co-president of it. Ah, congratulations. Well, thank you very much. After years and years and years, the work on the Underground Railroad and the work in education took me to a lot of different places. And often when I was in a place like Selma, Alabama, or Montgomery, Alabama, or Oxford, Mississippi, I would go and I would visit some of the civil rights sites because the music that was used on the Underground Railroad became the songs that were used on the civil rights movement over 100 years later. Hmm. So all of that history is tied together in a continuum. So I often would go to the Civil Rights Museum and Memphis or go to see the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma or just go to these places. And uh, I think it was 2010, a friend of mine, Unitarian minister in Long Island, Hope Johnson, went on a pilgrimage with some folks. It was actually a man named Gordon Gibson, Unitarian minister, and his wife who took a busload of people to visit places where they had served after Dr. King sent out the call for white people basically to come to the South and work for civil rights. And so they had connections there. And about three years before that, they had taken a bus. Hope went on the tour and she said it was just amazing to go visit these places. And she's from Jamaica. So it was a real education for her. She said the only thing they don't have is they don't have anybody that can do the music in an authentic way. Wow. And she said, I, I thought about you. Would you be interested in doing that? And I said, yeah, I could do that. So the next year I got the call from them and I just went with about 35 people on a bus. We went to about four places a day. And in between, I would get people singing because that's what happened. And you're so good at that. Well, it's a passion. I come out of a community that sang. And then, of course, becoming friends with Pete Seeger and Tom Paxton and Dr. Bernice Johnson Reagan of Sweet Honey and the Rock. Along the way, I just really began to tire of always doing music that focused things on me. You know, just the constant search for fame, as it were. Right. Being the center of attention. You know, I think that music is just so obviously powerful when you involve people in the process. That's very Pete Seeger. Yeah. Do you have any funny stories to tell us about you and Pete? <laughs> well, Kim and I were actually asked to come in part of a concert where he was the headliner. And that night I went backstage and as I was walking around, it was a little dark back there and Pete would kind of leave his banjo around. Oh no. He left it on the floor behind a curtain and I almost stepped on it. <laughs> that was the beginning of our friendship because no. he was sitting across from it and he saw that and he said, who are you? 
And I said, I'm Reggie Harris. Are you saying the banjo? Uh, yeah. Well, I was going to say, I'm the guy who almost stepped on your banjo. <laughs> But we had a conversation, and then over the years, with he and his wife Toshi, just developed this really amazing friendship. I mean, Pete was just so open for everybody who wanted to use music in a way that brought people together. And that really connected me to my childhood, you know, music as community. It just opened up a window for the way I wanted to use music. And once I hit the bus and the Living Legacy pilgrimage, I found a new calling. I was doing about two pilgrimages a year. People would sign up and tour these museums yeah. and the Pettus Bridge and things like that. It's a transformational experience. I bet. We go to these places and we hear the stories of the people who were working in those places at that time. The people who were in Marion, Alabama the night that Jimmy Lee Jackson was shot by the state trooper, which led to the march from Selma to Montgomery. We hear about Joanne Bland, for example, who was nine years old on the bridge that day when they marched across the bridge with Hosea Williams and John Lewis at the front. And then, of course, the big scene of Bloody Sunday. Wow. Yeah, we take people to all those places. And the music sets up the atmosphere of people being able to resonate with each other. And the stories just rise. You know, now, for example, we take them into Montgomery and we take them to the uh, Equal Justice Initiatives, Peace and Justice Museum and to the Lynching Museum. Wow. And, you know, it's either four days or a week of just such powerful experiences centered in music. What kind of a song might you play on a trip like that? And would you sing one for us? Wow. I will sing you a song that I wrote recently. The reason I wrote it was because of my work with Living Legacy. I love the way one thing leads to the other. We're singing spirituals, you know, wait in the water, wait in the water, children, wait in the water. God's gonna trouble the water. I'm just so infused with that music, but, you know, I have all of this other resource inside of me. So it just kind of frames ideas. And um, so I'm leading people. We're singing songs like Been Down into the South, songs that gave people courage, songs that helped people not to be afraid when they were being attacked by dogs or fire hoses. And it has built a lot of my writing around the issue of dealing with, you know, how we feel when we're trying to make a difference in the world. So as the pandemic hit, I was sitting here at home trying to figure out what my next move was, how I wanted to reach out. And a song came in the style of the spirituals and the civil rights freedom songs. So this is that song. It's called On Solid Ground. We will not rest till the storm is over. We will not lay this burden down. We will keep each other strong. We will love and carry on till we stand all together on solid ground. We will not rest till the storm is over. Hey, we will not lay this burden down. We will keep each other strong. We will love and carry on till we stand all together on solid ground. Been a long, hard journey on a winding road. So many have gone before us. They carried a heavy load, but they went there singing as they made their way. Now it's in their footsteps we follow as we work today. We will not rest till the storm is over. Hey, we will not lay this burden down. Well, 
and we will keep each other strong. We will love and carry on till we stand all together on solid ground. I know that you're weary. We all feel the pain. Sometimes the actions of the world will try us all again. But I believe there's a better day and it's coming our way. That's why we're raising our voices as we work today. We will not rest till the storm is over. Hey, we will not lay this burden down. We will keep each other strong. We will love and carry on till we stand all together on solid ground. All around us there's hatred. All around us there's fear. Violence touches our lives and the message is clear. We mourn our martyrs. In our hearts they'll stay. Then we'll sing, we shall overcome and go on our way. We will not rest till the storm is over. Hey, we will not lay this burden down. Well, we will keep each other strong. We will love and carry on till we stand all together on solid ground. Till we stand all together on solid ground. Till we stand all together on Silent Ground. Bravo. You've been listening to Reggie Harris, original song. And you say you wrote that in the last little while. So you've actually been productive during these uh, these last few months that we've been in quarantine. Oh, my goodness. The floodgates opened. Wow. I came home on March the 8th. Uh, I had my last date in Buffalo, New York. I drove home. And then, of course, everything was breaking down and popping out and people were just confused. We didn't know anything. And I, and I started to watch as date after date after date just disappeared. And I had a couple of weeks of being depressed and kind of like everybody else. And then I thought about actually the work that I've been doing over the years in education, history, faith, just all those things. And I thought, you've been working to send the message. And it's not a specific message. It's just that there is hope in the world and that we are responsible for working towards it. Wow. Yeah. Soon after that, I think by the first week of April, I started having ideas and I started sitting down with my guitar and I started doing a few online concerts. And all of a sudden, one song after another started coming. I've written eight songs since the beginning of April. We're the lucky ones who are going to get to hear those, I hope. Well, actually, I just finished three days of pre-production. Greg Greenway, my dear friend with whom I do another show called Deeper Than the Skin, he just came up and, and we socially distanced while working. I'm going to put out a CD between now and February. Fantastic. Called On Solid Ground. I, for one, cannot wait. Greg Greenway, another wonderful songwriter. And I know that Deeper Than the Skin is quite the project. It's music. It's a visual, too. It's not just a CD or songs. Who came up with the idea first? We both did. We've been talking about doing something for about, well, we've known each other for over 35 years. Right. You're both very involved with Phil Oaks Nights. That's where we met. Right. Yeah. We met at the Phil Oaks Night, I think back in the village, actually, at the Village Gate years and years ago. That goes back a while. And we just really loved each other's writing. And, and also we're big sports heads. <laughs> there are not that many people in the folk community you can really talk down and dirty sports. So uh, you're one of them. <laughs> I'm, and, and thank goodness I, I like the same teams you do. <laughs> 
So how did Deeper Than the Skin come about? The way it worked, we'd been talking for about 15 years about putting something together, and we didn't know what. And we tried a couple of times, and nothing really worked. And then he saw a 60-minute piece on the Whitney Plantation in Louisiana. A guy named Cummings bought the sugar plantation and restored it to what it had been in the 1850s so that people could come and see slavery as it really was. Greg mentioned it to me, and some space opened up in our, our lives, and we decided to take a 23-hour drive to that plantation west of New Orleans. Where is Greg from? He was born in Richmond, Virginia. Yep. And my family, of course, comes from Virginia, and we figure that our DNA come basically out of the same pool. And that really has informed our friendship. We've had so many talks over the years about race and history. And I mean, this has been our friendship. So on that drive, we did the same thing. And then we went through the museum and we went all over New Orleans. And on the drive back, we said, I think we have the makings of a show. So the show basically is us talking about our separate narratives, him being white and born in Richmond, me being black with Virginia roots, but born in Philadelphia, and how our friendship over the years has led us to really explore. You know, I started hearing a lot of his songs. I mean, songs about Rosa Parks and Nelson Mandela. And I thought, why is this white boy writing about black people so much? <laughs> Interesting. So those are the questions I asked. The show is basically a narrative narrative of our friendship, our separate narratives growing up across racial lines, but then how we came together. And then the second half of the show, we talk about where we are in present day history and with issues. The songs that we contributed, you know that I have a song called Hickory Hill. Right. That song was written because in 2010, I found out that my family started on a plantation called Hickory Hill in Ashland, Virginia. I managed to meet a descendant of the master who owned my family and also had six children by a slave named Bibana, who was my great-great-great-grandmother. General Williams Carter Wickham was a Confederate general. He and his wife owned 257 slaves. One of those slaves was my great-great-grandmother with whom he had these children. But the woman you met is a cousin. Amazing. One of his descendants on the white side. We took a walk on that property together in 2012, and I wrote the song as a result of that. Barren fields to the horizon The ghosts of autumn catch the wind Memories of those saints and sinners Gather round to haunt us once again Now we're finally here together Standing silent face to face Secret family undercover Born of shame Saved by hope and grace Hickory Hill We're on hallowed ground Walking side by side Wondering what we found Hearts break open wide Across the great divide I can see the questions in your eyes now that we are home again. So that song is in the show. Greg did some research in his family's history and found out that one of his great-great uncles owned two slaves. So he wrote a song called The Skin I'm In. 
And then I'd written a song years ago about race relations called Wonders of the Heart. That's in the show. So we just kept adding in songs and also singing some of the traditional songs. So it's a story concert, basically, that we do. If life goes back to normal for us musicians, will you guys continue to take the show on the road? We will, but we're actually doing it now online. Oh, so people can actually join you? Yes. Is it a Zoom thing? Yeah. We've worked it out. Speaking of songs that are personal and songs that talk about history and things that are going on, are there any particular songs or is there a song that you may have performed in the past that have touched people and have they come up to you and told you stories about it? Oh, sure. My God. My early songwriting heroes were James Taylor, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Richie Havens when he did write. People who wrote from a very deep place. I mean, Joni Mitchell is the same. Those were my songwriting heroes. So I'm a narrative writer. I'm a writer that works on finding images that paint pictures. Some of that is about injustice or all of that, but you know, some of it might be love or some of it just might be ways in which we feel. I've been fortunate over the course of my career to write a number of songs that, yes, people come up. Sometimes some of the songs that I write, I have to look in the audience and watch people cry as I'm singing it because they resonate deeply. I feel very fortunate that I have found the mechanism to translate the things that affect me in life and write them in ways that are not just personal. I mean, resurrection. Day came out of the experience of reaching a point where if I hadn't gotten a liver transplant, I would have left this earth. It was a 13-year illness that sort of landed me there. And then I found myself receiving a gift just about the last minute that I possibly could. A 43-year-old man died and his family donated his organs. On October the 29th, 2008, I received his liver. About seven months after that, I began to hear this. As often happens. I was actually in Canada when I started writing this song. Aww. We're very blessed that you received that liver and obviously very blessed that you're continuing to write songs. I had written a, another group of songs and I was actually in Toronto meeting with Kim Whiteley. Right. That's the CD I was on. Oh my goodness. That's right. <laughs> it feels like yesterday <laughs> and it's a long time ago. Wow. We had a wonderful time there. Well, on the trip that I made to talk to him about recording it, I'd written about eight songs for that album. What are you calling it, he said. And I said, I'm going to call it Resurrection or Resurrection Day. And he said, oh, well, I'm looking at all the titles. I'm looking at all the songs that you've sung for me, and I don't see a Resurrection Day song. Is there going to be one? <laughs> In that Ken Whiteley way. In that Ken Whiteley way. <laughs> And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, you know, if you're going to call it Resurrection Day, think about it. <laughs> and literally that night, I went upstairs in the room where I was staying. And, and I started playing that. And as often happens, I had this moment where I saw myself back in the hospital bed where I was laying before the transplant. And then I saw the recovery room where I... I woke up after the seven-hour operation that put the new liver in. That's incredible. And the song just, it didn't write itself, <laughs> but I'll play it. First, I'll tune. And just on a side note, of course, the same day you received that liver transplant, the Phillies won the World Series, did they not? You know, it was an amazing day. <laughs> 
Uh, they won the World Series. I got a liver. My aunt, the mother of my first cousin, turned to my cousin that morning and said, how's Reggie? She was sick in New York City. And my cousin said, well, mom, he's not doing really well right now. He's having a tough time. And she said, tell him I'm thinking of him. She said, I will. And a half an hour later, she died. On that same day. Oh, Reggie. And I was coaching basketball at that time with a young man who had just gotten married. And that morning, his wife gave birth to their first kid. Wow. To the rising sun, cause it's alright, it's over. Been a long, long journey, now that's done, and it's alright, it's over. Remember how you cried just one more day. All you can say Will I get over Can I get
Absolutely stunning. That was Reggie Harris and his song from the Kim and Reggie Harris album, Resurrection Day. Wow, we've touched upon a lot of things and we have so much more we could chat about. Oh, you know we could. <laughs> Did I tell you I'm writing a book? Are you doing that by yourself or do you have somebody writing with? Fortunately, I have a co-writer, a woman who approached me at a concert in Philly, as a matter of fact. I kind of knew her for years, but I didn't know actually that she was a writer. But she came up to me after a concert in February and she said that she had just finished writing a memoir and this is what she was doing now in her life. And she said, I think you have a book in you. I've been following you for all these years. You ever think about writing a book? And I said, yeah, <laughs> it will never happen. <laughs> Is that what you said? I did. I said, I wouldn't know where to start. And she said, well, actually, it might be easier than you think. So we had a couple of conversations. And as it turns out, I didn't realize it. But, you know, I've been writing a blog for my website and I've been writing other things. She asked me just to send her everything that I had. And we're nine chapters in. That's amazing. I can't wait. By the way, you spell my name P-R-A. <laughs> just kidding. Well, just kidding. <laughs> You know, it's been amazing. <laughs> you are blessed. Oh, I am thoroughly, totally blessed. You know, my entire life, I mean, there have been angels who've come to me in human form and in so many different ways to move me from one thing to the next. Opening doors, opening windows, putting opportunities in front of me. But the last four years in particular have just been so rich with exploration and opportunity. I'm so grateful. I never could have imagined that when I picked up the guitar that it would lead me to this life that I have and connect me so solidly to people who are just extraordinary and, you know, taking me around the world. C.T. Vivian, the civil rights leader, just died and I had a chance to meet him. I met Rosa Parks. I met Andrew Young. I've just met some remarkable people who literally have changed the world. And for the most part, all of those people have been so humble about their own exploits and the things that they did. I've had some great role models, obviously, you know, Pete Seeger and so many of the people that we know in our community. Many of them are famous and most of them are not. And that, I think, is the key. We're very lucky. It took me off of that thing that so often we think about wanting to be famous. And I think music has kept me grounded and it's kept me thinking about ways that I can be in the world. Well, brilliantly said. I kind of feel the same way. The longer we do this and the older we get, we realize how lucky we really are. Yeah, we do. To be doing what we're doing. Well, I tell you, you know, I remember, was it the last time we played in uh, Montreal? At uh, Folk Alliance? You were on stage with me and with Greg Greenway. And That's right, on the big stage. There's just nothing about looking across the stage <laughs> and seeing somebody that you know who is producing a sound that leads you to another sound in the exploration of resonance that can be music. And what it leads to is a lot of smiling faces in the audience when you play, <laughs> for sure. There's no doubt about it. Where can everybody find you on the interweb? Well, I try to make myself easily found. ReggieHarrisMusic.com will get you there. I'm also at Reg Music Man on Twitter. I'm all over Facebook. You know, you can find me there as well. But Reg Music Man and ReggieHarrisMusic.com, that's the easiest way to connect me. I have one quick question. Sure. Just to lighten things up a little bit. Tell us something silly and fun about yourself that no one would ever guess. <laughs> Caught ya. <laughs> oh, my. Uh, musically, I'm a big Carpenters fan. Stop. <laughs> oh, You are totally. a Carpenters. <laughs> 
Oh, big time. I don't know where to big go. With, I don't know what to say. Karen Carpenter's voice comes on and I melt. They were such a major thing for me in terms of harmonic approach. Oh, please. Never would have guessed. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't I don't have any questions after that because I can't even imagine. <laughs> I don't know where to go after that. Well, between that and being a pipe organ fan. Right, um, right. Pipe organ and the Carpenters. Quite a little party there. Reggie, I can't thank you enough for agreeing to do this, to sit down with me and chat and answer some questions and just reminisce and then just allow me to learn more about you. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, it's my pleasure. Can't wait to see you. I look forward to that very much. Everybody, you've been listening to Reggie Harris. And I really do think we need to go out on that laugh. (laughs) Folkpod is a production of Long Story Short with me, Cheryl Prashker, your host and producer, and Shauna Boniface, our creator, producer, editor, head cook, and bottle washer. Catch us on Twitter and Instagram at The Folkpod. Thanks for listening and hope to see you next time. 